You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My conversation today is with Jeffrey Cohen, who is a professor of psychology and the James G. March Professor of Organizational Studies in Education and Business at Stanford University. He's got a great new book. It's called Belonging, the Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Jeffrey Cohen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So over the last six years or so, my work has focused on the intersection of improvisational practice, performance, and behavioral science. So when I discovered the work of Irving Goffman, I was immediately bought in because the language he uses to describe his insights is just laden with all this theatrical imagery. And you note early in this book that his his work pervades uh, your, your thinking and, and, and the ideas in this book. That's right. Irving Goffman, I think, is like the Albert Einstein of social science. He had just such a keen eye. It was as if he was an alien observing social interaction through a kind of outsider lens. And But what that did was he would just tease out the wonder in everyday, ordinary social interactions. And reading Goffman today, I still feel every morning when I read him, it's like, whoa, this world is a lot more wondrous than I was taking for granted. Yeah, the, the, this I, you know, the, the idea of multiple selves, and he uses the sort of offstage, onstage backstage uh metaphor um is revolutionary still people are still sort of writing and talking about this and trying to dissect it because i think we've such a cult in our country of this one authentic self and and i just don't (laughs) i don't think that's true i think you're totally right i mean it's such a tricky issue it is as goffman says that inner self is the one reality that we cannot observe Mm -hmm. yet we take it so seriously because we feel really off off put it when someone seems fake to us. So there is a kind of sense that 
yeah, there is an authentic self in someone else that we feel in a situation and we feel ourselves to be behaving authentically or not. Yet, as you're hinting at, in any moment, there are a zillion ways in which we could be ourselves. How do we go from the buzzing, blooming confusion that is our mind to, to act right here, right now, to say something right here, right now? What's that choice? And I think it depends on not just who we are, quote unquote, but the situations before us. And a situation is almost like a canvas in which we write ourselves anew every moment. I've been having this conversation with Scott Barry Kaufman for like weeks now, which is this new selves seem to crop up. I'm I'm 54. and, And this is like in the last year or two. Well, even before that, I've I've made many many more discoveries about myself or changes in myself that I just would never have expected in my twenties thirties or even forties when I had a much more fixed idea of who I was, uh, um, what my family was or meant, uh, what I what I mean at work, and that stuff's just been challenged and switched in both very positive and sometimes very negative ways. Yeah, <clears throat> and you kind of discover yourself through the situations you put yourself in. And that's why I think challenging yeah, yourself, putting yourself outside your comfort zone. Uh, um, a colleague, Panit Russo, and I did a little study just you know to slip this in where uh, we just had people go out to plan an activity in which they went a little bit outside their comfort zone. And we found that for people who were unhappy, that that activity had a pretty sizable effect on their well-being. They, they felt better. And a lot of times they were doing things that were that fit with who they were, but they just hadn't gotten around to, hadn't quite had the courage to do, and they needed some excuse to do it. I remember one person even adopted a foster child and wow. she had put it off, but then with this activity, she's like, okay, I'm going to go for it. And that's out of the box. Like, that's out of the box. So we at least found one more, one, as a result of this study, at least one more child has a home. Wow. We published a study with Islet Fishbach and others at the University of Chicago, and they, they, uh, studied a bunch of people taking their first uh, improv class at Second City. And half of the group was told um, before they did an exercise that this is going to be a little uncomfortable, um, but stick with it. And the other half weren't told anything. And overwhelmingly, just giving someone the prompt that this is going to be over, this is going to be uncomfortable, but stick with it. People engaged longer in the in the task, uh, had more success in the task and reported feeling better about the task. Oh, that is so interesting. That is so interesting. And and it, it really speaks to just how much we want to feel like we're not alone in our own suffering and misery. One of the kind of big predictors of whether or not we feel like we belong is whether we think our suffering is unique to us, if we feel like, yeah, we're the only one, or if through prompt, some prompt, like the intervention you just mentioned, mm-hmm. we cr- we kind of dispel that ambiguity and make people understand that, yeah, actually, this is a pretty universal experience that feeling like you're the only one is ironically pretty pretty universal especially in these challenging stressful situations um so that that's a beautiful little study you described yeah uh kurt lewin is the other thinker that you cite a lot can you tell us a little bit about him and his work well kurt lewin was the forefather or founding figure of social psychology he was a refugee of nazi germany and he created the field that we now know today as social psychology What he did was to show that a social science need not just be analytic and observational, but it could also be interventionist. And so he was continually creating little experiments to reveal our hidden potentials, especially for good. Lewin really wanted to use social science 
to bring out the better nature of our uh, of our bring out the better angels of our nature. And so, just to kind of give one quick example, he would show that you could take ordinary people, this is like in boys clubs, but he later did similar stuff with adults, and put them under the leadership of an authoritarian adult, an authoritarian adult, the boys would be working with this adult who commanded and controlled them, told them what to do. Or uh, for another group of kids, the adult was kind of more democratic in leadership and style and had the kids do what they wanted, help them identify their will and act on it. Long story short, what he found is that the style of leadership that uh, that 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 was executed in a group had a huge effect on the boys' behavior and the nature of the relations. So when the leader was in a, was authoritarian, the boys became like animals. Essentially, they became very uh, aggressive and scapegoating towards one another. Or for other groups, they became very docile and passive. But for the democratic groups, it's as if the boys were just different boys. They would see pleasure in each other's company. They would work and collaborate together. They wouldn't be so focused on themselves. They'd be focused on the work and they produce work that was judged to be a significantly better quality. What this study shows is that who we are depends on where we are and where we are can be crafted for us in the day-to-day situations of our lives. Often, they're crafted, as you say, with that metaphor by Goffman of the stage. The stages are crafted for us, but but we can alter the stage through our our actions, our words. We can change the situations we're in for the better. And, and that's the legacy of Lewin is to show the power of the situation to bring out the better nature of ourselves. It was as if his little experiments were giving little glimpses of social paradise. Here's what we could be in the right situation. It's funny. I hadn't thought about this before, but it's like I, there's like a direct line between that and choice architecture. That 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 feels like that is the, the that that's the wise intervention, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Choice architecture and behavioral economics comes from social psychology. That's yeah. uh, Doc Hartwright and Kurt Lewin in the 1930s and 40s. That They did this kind of classic research showing that, for example, just make it easier to buy war bonds during World War II. Ask people with a face-to-face request, a specific request, buy one more war bond, and war bond sales uh, doubled. Uh, all that comes from social psychology, which is basically understanding how situations shape who we are and how we act and and behavioral uh, science kind of came out of out of that tradition which shows very usefully very fruitfully just in in one specific way how changing the architecture of the our choices can help us to make choices better choices uh my wife was co-teaching a exec ed class at uh university of chicago with richard thaler um and and he was he didn't he didn't know us prior to coming in we knew them later and he greenlit our our project up there um but um uh, do you know the yes and exercise out of improv? I, I, a little bit. I've never done improv. I'm so interested yep. in it. But yeah. So, so the exercise is basically you pair people and you say, uh, uh, we're going to plan a reunion. This this event has been so amazing. It's going to be a year from now. Person A, you're going to pitch your ideas for a reunion. Person B, for about a minute, uh, you're going to respond uh, no in as many ways po- as possible. It does, does that. And then we switch places and person B pitches and person A is supposed to say yes, but. Uh, and the funny thing about that is after when we sort of um, talk about that, uh, half the people think that was a better experience, half think it's worse. And our point is that yes, but is just no with a with a bow tie. Um, yeah. Because then the third is when you yes and both parties yes and and they, you know, we're having sushi on the moon. And Thaler was like, that's a nudge. Yes and is a nudge. We're like, yeah, it's it, people's default position uh, is to do no or say nothing. And yes and literally forces you into this place of agreement and addition 
And that's really crucial because just the agreement is not enough. That really won't get you anywhere. The the really good stuff comes out of that. And that's that's your um getting out of your comfort zone because you know, you might not want it, yes and this thing. But with with your on stage and you're making up this world, you have to. It's like you're building together. You're yeah. building it. Someone puts a brick down, you put a brick down. Someone puts another brick down, you put another brick and and you go with the flow. It's kind of like play. It right. seems it's like yeah, play. What, we're building a sandcastle together. Yeah, one of our phrases you you learn to bring a brick, not a cathedral. Yeah, that's right. Bring a brick, not a cathedral. I love that. I mean, that applies to just about any situation you're in, I suppose. I mean, those Lewinian authoritarian leaders were bringing bringing a a, a cathedral. Uh, the democratic leaders were creating a situation where each kid could bring their brick and we could assemble it together. And that's the nature of maybe democracy too. Is that sure. it's the nature create, of culture? It, 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 nature we of don't culture. do this alone. This is the, this is my so yeah. frustrating to me in the world we live in, which is like we we are just never the human experience, the human experiment. Let's call it that will not work if we have to cancel each other out. It just yeah. it, it just doesn't. So let's figure out at least a way to work together. I think the challenge of integration is kind of very much like this to kind of take it in a in a a bit more of a direction of you know so societal problems that the problem of integration of creating a truly diverse society where all feel like they belong even people from historically ostracized groups or negatively stereotyped groups that that is kind of like a challenge of that is reminiscent of improvisation how do we create these moments, I mean, it is kind of like, how do we create inclusive moments? That seems to be the challenge yes. of improvisation, right? So that everyone contributes and we're building something together, but you could kind of scale it up and say, well, that's the problem of society, of democracy. How do we create a society or a classroom even where people or a workplace where people have that sense of belonging, being part of a larger mission, mattering and being accepted. And I, I think improvisation is great. That yes and technique is a, is a great example of a, of a, of a praxis for achieving it. So one of the things that the barriers and you talk about in this book is, is that this starts by us admitting that we might be wrong. Uh, and probably more than that, understanding that we are wrong many, 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 many times. So Nick Epley being one of the scientists yeah. we work with at the university of Chicago, his work yeah, is great. all over this. And we developed a spoke exercise based on that work. I would love you to talk about the Mary Ainsworth study on mothers and infants, because to me, that was a good example of like, oh, you think one thing is happening and quite another thing is happening. Well, Mary Ainsworth's study, he she uh, would look at infants behavior in what she referred to as a strange situation, strange situation. And her paradigm was a room full of toys that were alien or unfamiliar to the child. And what she would do to simplify would she would bring the mother caregiver in this era and their infant two years old i think and sit them in the room and then look at the behavior of the infant and now some infants would go off and explore venture forward and explore the room even if they didn't behaviorally do that they would just look they would look mm -hmm. at the room and its possibility let's say uh whereas other infants would stay close to their mom and huddle close and be fearful as if the situation was threatening. So at a very young age, we seem to be able to, we seem to kind of interpret situations as either safe and inviting of adventure or threatening and uh, requiring us to, to huddle uh, inward. And what she found uh, was that when she tried to predict who would venture forward and who would stay close, ironically, it was the kids who had a strong bond or attachment 
what she called a secure base with their mom who seemed to venture forward more often. And that's ironic because you would think, oh, if I have a strong connection, that means I should stay close. But no, a strong mm-hmm. connection, it's almost like an, a, a sort of psychological umbilical cord. It lets you kind of venture forward and explore while feeling like someone has your back. Now, I'm putting myself in the minds of the infants. Who knows what they're thinking? But right. when we grow older, uh, we're constantly encountering strange situations of this sort. And I, I do think a sense of belonging somewhere gives us that secure base we need to take advantage of life's opportunities and challenges. One of the things I have tried to do is listen to opinions that are different than mine and uh, not not always successful, sometimes backfires. Um, But I thought it was really interesting that you brought up this incident at Yale in 2015 on on Halloween. Yeah. Uh, because Nick Christakis, who's part of the, he and his wife are part of part of this, uh, is w- one of those thinkers who I'm like, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm not with you, yeah. I'm with you, oh, I'm not with you. And and can can you talk about what happened? And and I thought you, the way you talked about how difficult that was to watch uh, because so little mutual understanding. You're not pointing fingers at one one party not here at all. Fingers. Yeah, no, yeah. not at all. I mean, again, to make a, a long story short, it was a, a sort of tense event where uh the students especially members of the of the black community were upset with an email that had been sent uh by uh nick's wife who was also a faculty member there uh which basically said we value freedom of speech here and she was referring to a code that was uh, a, a series of suggestions that the, I think the Yale diversity office had sent out saying, you know, you really should watch out for cultural mis, you know, uh, misappropriation. Mm-hmm. You really should be careful with your costumes. Like don't wear blackface could be upsetting to people. It's a set of recommendations. This often gets kind of confused. It was a set, it wasn't a mandate. It was a set of recommendations. And then, so what uh, uh, Nick's, uh, wife uh, wrote in her email was that, uh, you know, freedom of speech, if it, you, people should be able, freedom of expression, people should be able to wear what they want to wear. And if you have a problem, say something. And so then there was a kind of debacle between Nicholas and the students and things got really tense and inflammatory between the students and him. And I just, he was defending freedom of speech. The students were saying, we want an apology. And it really comes to a head for me watching this video. At the very end, there's a student. I don't know her name, but she says something that I just think so poignant. She says, this is not about freedom of speech. This is about creating a home. And mm-hmm. I just think, yeah, exactly. They're just looking at the issues from two different perspectives. Yeah. You can have freedom of speech. You can have freedom of expression if we're all sitting at the same table and trust one another. And we all feel like we belong. But you got to be really careful if that's not there. And that's understandable in a in a pretty diverse place where people are coming from a wide range of backgrounds. So I think, you know, having this conversation is very helpful that belonging, that sense that we're all at the same table and equals in terms of our dignity is a precondition to engaging in intellectual conversations and looking at things from multiple points of view. Let's not say precondition, let's say soil that makes that kind Mm. of social endeavor possible and fruitful. And so creating that home where we all feel like, I mean, we've all been there. You're at home, you have a disagreement, 
if you feel at home and you all trust one another, that disagreement can be very fruitful. But if that's not there, if there's some triggering cues and in, you know, your mom or your dad says something that triggers something in you and it's a disagreement, but then it turns into something else that, that won't go anywhere useful, but people are on the defensive. So the larger issue here is how to create homes, how to turn our institutions and places that feel like homes for, for all people. And I know that, that, that can seem touchy feely to many, but the whole point of research on belonging is that what seems touchy feely is actually pretty essential. Yeah. I, you know, after I, I'll give a keynote somewhere, uh, people uh, inevitably, this almost always comes up, which is like, you should go to Washington and teach them to improvise. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, but if you're, if you're not going to walk in the room um, open uh, to that experience, if you're not going to walk in, in the room with a kind of uh, curiosity um, and so many of the extremes seem, you know, anti-curiosity. And I found it really interesting when you talked about the research around extremist groups, that there's not a predominant personality type, that few have mental illness, and that it's a really broad cross-section. Because that's not that's not my knee-jerk, or I think most people's knee-jerk thought when you think about those people going to extremist groups. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> extremism has many sources, and I'm not an expert in in hate, uh, though I do study prejudice and stereotyping. But from my review of the research, I do think that one major ca- cause of hateful ideologies and extremism is a defeated need to belong. Many times, in many at least anecdotal cases, but also observational studies by um, Ari Kruglansky, one of the big predictors of whether people <clears throat> join these groups is just feeling like you or your larger group in general, people like me, are disconnected from the rest of humanity. And that makes people vulnerable. That makes people vulnerable to groups that promise them a sense of belonging. Uh, and uh, it makes them vulnerable to extremist groups promulgating dangerous and even ridiculous beliefs. There's a story of uh, CPL's great, great story told by Studs Terkel. Uh, there's a movie about it too, and a book. But long story short, this guy, he was in... Uh, he joined the KKK. He was from a pretty economically disadvantaged background. He was really pretty socially isolated. Things were not going well for him. Like so many today, he felt left behind, which captures very well that sense of having a defeated need of belonging. I am left behind. To belong literally means to go with. So to not belong is to feel left behind. He felt left behind. He was working at a gas station. Some uh, members of KKK came and visited him at the gas station, had coffee with him late at night. They talked with him and then they invited him to come to a a KKK ceremony. And and he eventually became a member. And he describes that moment when he was kneeling before the altar and people were watching him and applauding him, the CPLs. He said, I felt like someone. This Mm -hmm. little old me felt like someone big. I felt important. I felt like someone that mattered. And he became a member of this group, not because he subscribed to the hateful ideology, but because it was a a family for him. And that's how they hook you. These groups are very sophisticated in how they exploit that need to belong. Might not be your need to belong. You might just feel like your larger nationality or religious group has been left behind. And that's what makes you vulnerable. The ways to get these people back, and this includes CPLs who had a radical transformation, uh, is to reconnect them, reconnect them with other groups, with different 
outlooks and and different, more authentic bases of belonging. Uh, these hate groups have a Achilles heel, as Bruce Bruce Hoffman, an expert, describes. Oh, that's why I want you. I want you to tell that yeah, story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, well, they're just filled with backstabbing. So it's like very hard to have an authentic sense of belonging when you know I could be the next one, right? Totalitarianism, you know, more generally is a is a uh, mother who eats her own children. And so if you know your your belonging is never safe, it's always conditional in those groups. Whereas if you can give people that unconditional sense of dignity, uh, you can bring them back. And Christian Piccolini, uh, another guy who uh, joined the neo-Nazi group, he now has an organization dedicated to bringing extremists back, says basically this, you bring these people back, not through persuasion, not through telling them how wrong they are, but by helping them to feel that they are individuals of dignity in your eyes. And that's what brings them back, that sense of of connection, of belonging. And that goes back to Lewin. The people change, their hearts open when they join new groups that introduce them to new possibilities. It's not just a matter of information and arguments and evidence. It's a matter of opening your perspective to new people, new groups. And you uh, working at improv, I love your stories. It kind of really resonates with that kind of situation where to be in an improvisational situation, you have to be open. You have to kind of think, oh, this person has something interesting to say. I want to learn more. Yeah. And I, you know, um, my field uh, is not uh, unproblematic in terms of its past. Uh, and I, and as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, oh, because this could go either way, right? If you and, and my wife often says, and she's worked at Second City longer than I have, uh, that you know, if you've got an alpha in your group who is going to follow the 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 creed and 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 the philosophy of improvisation, you're fine. Uh, but if you have the opposite, loudest voice uh, doesn't have that or is selfish, it's not going to work out. And and specifically, there's been so few bad second city shows honestly because we we wrap a prototype in front of audiences so we at the very least it's going to be funny but i can think of a few that went south and for sure the alpha and it was always a male um made it about themselves and that and the group could not recover even if the rest of the group were fantastic and how do they make it about themselves what are they doing that that conveys that uh i'm not going to name names but this okay, is a very yeah. well very well known uh <laughs> okay. comedian uh-huh. Uh, stole material from mm-hmm. like, like from a student show, uh, did a ton of solo pieces, um, would steal other people's lines, um, uh, uh was a stage hog, uh, mm-hmm. in improvisation. So all the things, cause we teach you, your job is to make your partner look good. David Pasquese, who's a wonderful actor and improviser, uh, won, uh, uh, the Jeff award, which is our, like the Tony award in Chicago for best actor, uh, in a review. And he, when he got up, he apologized. Cause he said he clearly wasn't being a good ensemble member. If he was the one who made himself stick out to get this award. <laughs> That's sweet. I like yeah. that. It's a little, it's a little, little Steve Carell episode uh, in the office where he joins an improv group and he's, he pretends he has a gun and just shoots everyone. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, and, then, and Steve Carell, one of the most generous improvisers, right? So, so playing, playing the opposite of that, because he, I remember Adam McKay, had to understudy Colbert uh, and it was a show that Colbert and Krell were in um, and Adam coming off and we were very close uh, uh, with Stephen too, but uh, he, he came off and said, I had no idea what an incredible improviser he is. Like it looks so effortless off stage. You're just like, Oh, okay. But when you're working with him, you can just see him like supporting and listening to you and, and, and really building from whatever you're contributing uh, again, an enormously satisfying feeling. 
Oh, we could take some of those techniques and use them to create more inclusive situations. I mean, I think a lot of yep. that resonates with the social psychological research. That's- and we get hired to do that all, yeah. all the time. That's, so. inter- that's really interesting. Um, all right. Uh, anytime someone writes about Myers-Briggs, um, <laughs> I, I want to talk to them about it because okay. <laughs> what's because your people will be like, what's your Myers-Briggs? And I'm like, it's yeah, not <laughs> science. It's not, it's not, and, and it's not denying personality types, right? It, but, it, but that particular piece of science is, I think quite a bit misleading. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's fun to be sure. My father loved it. He worked in industry and he yeah. would always give the family members the the Myers-Briggs. <clears throat> and to his dying day, he said, I can, I can, I can peg what Myers-Briggs type you are just by interacting with you for five seconds. Uh-huh. And so he loved it. And, uh, the, the, you know, they're fun. They're fun. It's like astrology. You get to interpret your... It's like astrology. <laughs> yeah. And, and, pr- and probably just about as predictive, right? It's, it, which is not at all. Uh, Myers-Briggs generally does not predict behavior and uh, is not a very useful instrument given the research for understanding a person's real motives, predicting how they'll act, or even understanding how they'll complement a team. It, it's really not right. that useful, but it is a huge, uh, huge industry. That's not to say it's, you know, all these things I'm kind of open-minded about. These things can be kind of useful tools of conversation, like, oh, that's your type. That's right. It kind of creates a conversation, right? Yes, and mm-hmm. oh, you're, you're an ENTJ. I'm an INFP. Now we can have a conversation about, you know, introversion, extroversion, and our and what it means to us and our our histories and our barriers to being fully who we are they they're useful in that way as conversation starters but i don't i don't think that they uh, are very useful as personality measures and and it also i get in arguments with my colleagues you know good natured arguments with colleagues who are more from studying personality i i think that we spend way too much time as a society thinking about how to measure people. Like we got to find the right employees. We got to mm. find the highest achieving students. We got to find the high IQ people to join our team. Uh, we got to find people with high emotional talent. And we have this proliferation of personality and aptitude measures now. And I think we just spent way, way, way too much time trying to figure out who is the best person for this situation and not enough time trying to figure out how can I make the situation a little bit better for everyone. And that especially applies to schools with all their uh, sorting mechanisms and aptitude testings and their regimen of evaluations. Schools and workplaces could spend a lot more time kind of giving up on, not giving up entirely, but kind of downplaying that that motive to find the right people and instead creating more situations that bring out the assets in everyone. And um, I think the research generally supports that idea that situations, situation crafting is a good place to, 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 to concentrate our energy, to bring up people's best in work school. And so personality, we're, we have a kind of cult of personality, a fetish of personality in, in this country, in this society and in, in the Western world, which I think can be pretty damaging. Uh, so we do t- some uh, tons of work in the corporate learning space. And I, I often feel like you should take all that money that you're wasting and do with the stuff you're talking about and put it in daily practices uh, or let's say weekly practices, uh, which I think would be wise interventions of a certain sort, but give people the ability to practice how they make decisions, practice how they communicate, practice how they lead. Um, Because, and I think this jives with the research around tutors uh, and this idea that the best tutors that ninety percent of their utterances were questions. Yeah, that, and again, that goes back to prompts, right? That that's like 
you're just prompting and prompting and prompting and you're helping someone. It's almost like talk therapy a little bit. Yeah, you're helping. You're scaffolding them. Prom- you're, scaffolding. you're scaffolding them up, but prompting. And that's what uh, the Colbert uh, example reminds me of. They're prompting the person in a way that helps them to contribute who they are in, in the situation. And I think we can we can all learn prompts. I think that's a really good way to put it. Uh, this kind of skill set of of creating situations where people feel affirmed and supported. And that makes them more likely to um, perform up to their potential and show what they know. I, one study, just to give you an example, this is probably, uh, you know, kind of reminds me of the alpha male situation you described. This was one by Lee Ross, where he just brought people in to play a, a competitive economic game, like one of these strategic self-interest games, such as like the prisoner's dilemma. And his kind of key question is, does a person act in a greedy way? and try to defect from the other player and grab all the pot of money? Or do they try to cooperate and share the money? And I'm just simplifying the the game. And most people think, what's going to predict your move, what move you make, whether you're selfish or altruistic or cooperative, is the kind of person you are, whether you're a greedy SOB or a really Mm -hmm. nice person. And they found that people's reputation as greedy or nice among their peers, that had no predictive value, didn't predict the move people made. What did matter was this kind of scaffolding in the situation, whether the experimenter offhandedly referred to the game was the same objective game, but whether they referred to it as the community game or the wall street game, when Mm -hmm. he referred to his community game, 70% of people cooperated when he referred to it as the wall street game. Now 70% defected and acted in a greedy way. So that's just an example. And I think it's really empowering. Like that means, oh, we could, in the situations we walk into, we could kind of frame them somehow, if we could do this, as community games. That's what improvisation sounds like. It's kind of all about. It's like, yeah. Yeah. we're in this together. And there's little things I can do to help encourage that construal of the situation. Uh, and and I think that's what kind of sculpting, crafting situations is is often all about. You're trying to kind of create a situation where selves can express themselves and kind of cooperate and integrate their efforts better and it's it's a it's a challenge but i think uh i i think it's a uh it's a it's a it's such an important skill set i just finished yale sean brown's book work parent thrive and uh and and she's a a a couples therapist and a a scientist and her whole thing and i have kids i don't know if you do um but it's 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 basically the reframe of like look this is it's not easy it's 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 going to be hard uh but it's laden with meaning meaning and if you just can get yourself to reframe the situation and take the the moment and prompt prompt yourself to see the beauty in it or the and this is where humor comes in i think because like if you can find the humor in something that's huge and that's that's always been for my wife and i of course working at second city for both like you know 30 plus years you know, you, you you can't survive there unless you know both how to um, uh, create humor, uh, but also receive humor. Um, and that that is, you know, and, and I, I, it is very much true with parenting. It's it's so hard. So the, this, and, and I think it's it's kind of like that situation situation crafting as well. Yeah. Whether whether it be a, a reframe in, in your brain as you're approaching it, or a specific word. Um, Allison Wood Brooks being the person who told me if I'm feeling nervous before public speaking to say i'm excited and i'm like that works for me every single time unbelievable so much of what you say really dovetails with the psychological research so let's take a couple of examples that last one you just said really fits with work by uh jeremy jameson and uh uh my colleague 
Ali Crum <clears throat> on how reframing stress as a good thing can mm-hmm. be helpful. And so there are these studies now where uh, you have children or adults who are stressed out about a test, let's say, and you give them you give them uh, information that helps them to understand that no stress is not a bad thing universally. It's actually a sign that your body is getting ready for a challenge and marshalling its resources for it. it sounds like a little bit like that little, yeah. um, um, you know, bit of advice you got. And they find that that it reduces stress and improves people's test performance. That little reframing of the meaning of stress. People go on to these sort of downward loops, ruminative loops, where they think, I'm stressed, that's bad, it's bad that I'm, I'm feeling yep. bad. They kind of just spiral. So this kind of helps interrupt that spiral. Uh, another one is just affirmation, where it, the Colbert example is kind of like this. You you feel supported. The expert tutors uh, that you described who are so effective with at-risk kids are constantly affirming the students so that they feel like their whole self is seen and respected. And that <clears throat> fits with a technique in uh, in the research called values affirmations, where yeah. you give people the opportunity to reflect on their core values, especially in these situations where they might not feel like they belong, and then they feel more like they belong, and they're less oftentimes less stressed, and they perform up to the uh, perform more in uh, uh, it, it commensurate with their actual abilities. Um, so affirming the self helps people to express themselves and their assets. And then that example of, uh, you know, it's normal. You're normal. It's normal to feel stressed out of the situation. You're yep, not alone. Yep. That fits really well with work on uh, social belonging interventions by Greg Walton and me, where we find that just giving kids and students at the beginning of college information that helps them to understand that adversity in school, feeling like you don't fit in is normal, but with strategy and time is apt to be short-lived. These kinds of interventions have been shown to be very effective at improving uh, academic grades and even student retention under certain key circumstances. Of course, all these interventions work under certain key circumstances, but they're kind of like a toolkit that really dovetails. It sounds like with the toolkit people use in improvisation to help people yeah. feel like they they can contribute and belong. It's such an interesting interesting parallel. Yeah, and not even just improvisation. I remember when when our son was old enough to go to school, where we lived in Chicago, they had just opened a British school uh, uh, in Chicago. I'm like, this is perfect. We're Anglophiles. We're like, they, they great accents, all good. And he really, he started great and then really became unhappy at the end. And when I spoke to the headmaster, th- this guy would not, would not give budge on anything. And it, it was like, and, and wouldn't, it, it was bad. So my wife discovered Waldorf schools. And so we ended up taking it to Waldorf and there was like a world of difference because it's like story and play and they don't even hold a pencil or a pen until way down the line, which scares some parents where you're like, you know, they're going to learn to write, you know, they're going to learn to read. Why don't they discover themselves and other selves and how to exist in sort of a community first? And I, and I, for, for both my kids, I think that was very powerful and centered them in a, as human beings in a way that they were more prepared for the world that they were entering. I love that. And these expert tutors do something similar. Uh, you know, the ones that are so effective with at-risk kids, this is work by Mark Lepper. They begin every tutor session by asking the kids about themselves, their hobbies, what do they enjoy, mm-hmm. what's their their favorite play activity. And that just helps that helps to create a kind of comfort zone so the kids can then feel okay with challenging themselves. Now, the, the mediocre tutors, they just get down to business right away. We've got to get some work done. But the mm-hmm. expert tutors, the, the superior tutors, they create that psychological safety first. 
which enables people to kind of challenge themselves, put themselves out there on a limb and uh, feel okay enough to, to learn, to learn from other people. Because learning, I think, is ultimately about feeling okay and feeling like you can trust the people around you. I interviewed Joe Madden recently, you know, who won the World Series for the Cubs. So I was out of my mind. And but that's the way he leads. I mean, he leads by relationship and and other stuff. I mean, he does the funny trips where when, on planes where they get to dress up. And but he, all he's doing is creating this sense of uh, ensemble and team and relationship. And I, I was sort of like, well, what? Ha- Why did that fall apart in Chicago? What, what happened? He's like, they took it away from me and I let them. And wow. so they, they, they took away. And then that same, he goes, the same thing. When he went to the angels, it was the, his boss was like, do it, do your stuff. Then he got fired. And the guy who came in was a McKinsey consultant, not anyone who did any work in the minors, whatever, and started calling down plays. And it was wow. like, man's like, he went off on this guy after he did that. And he was fired two weeks later. The, the kind of world we live in today is kind of pressuring people to be uh good economic units and not really care about relationships and to the detriment of workplaces, to the detriment of schools, for sure. For who wants to work in a place like that? Who wants to, who can feel comfortable enough to be, to become open to wonder and passion in school? If you don't have that sense of this is my family, this is a home. It's, it is something that our, our society pushes to the side way too much, even in our day-to-day relationships. I, uh, Liz Dunn, has this wonderful research with her colleagues where she shows that, you know, just getting people out of this mindset of efficiency can be really mm. beneficial to our well-being. She had a, a with her uh, with her colleagues, she did this great little study where, you know, she had people go up to a barista, order a coffee. For one group, she just said, you know, make this make this purchase as efficient as possible. Just get your coffee. For another group, she said, essentially, you know, take some time to chit-chat. Maybe have a little exchange with your barista. That's it. And she found that uh, people in that second group who who weren't focused on efficiency, but were focused on connection, left the interaction happier. And the same goes with so many other things in our lives where this kind of urge for efficiency, especially in America, we see connections as a means to an end rather than an end unto themselves. And and I think that is just one of the one of the big scourges of our society, probably responsible for a lot of the mischief. Not all. I mean, of course, we have huge systemic problems. We really do need to change our institutions and our laws to make society a much more inclusive place, dismantle these these systems of exclusion. Um, At the same time, I do feel as though there are little things we can all do in our day-to-day lives to kind of fight back against these pressures to see each other in, in this kind of objectifying way and actually delight in each other's company and we'd all be the better for it. Uh, when I was made aware of that Starbucks study, uh, I immediately sort of thought of something, which is there's a Starbucks in Piper's Alley that houses Second City. So we, we have our Starbucks and my I go there almost every day, but sometimes I'm in another city and I go to a Starbucks there. Sometimes I'm dropping off my dog to be, you know, doggy daycare and I stop at a different one because it's a different direction. But what I realize is the interactions with those baristas, first of all, I know the first names of many of them and uh, they know me uh, and I realize, oh, because they have all these Second City actors, directors, teachers, students who populate this, that that is very natural for, for those people we're such extroverts that we're going to you know have those interactions. I'm like, oh, that's why this is the friendliest Starbucks in the world. Yes, that's right. You're kind of like a little family. Yeah. And um, 
I think it just applies generally too. Connection can be found in the most unlikely of places. That stuff we talked about, Nick Epley and mm-hmm. his work with Juliana Schroeder, where just kind of having people talk, strangers on a train, have a little conversation on a train with a stranger. People think that that's going to make them less happy. It actually makes them more happy. And uh, I think there's so, so many ways. Actually, which, yeah. I, what I want to tell you is we actually created a exercise based on that work. Uh, uh, with that plate. So my wife, my wife created it. It's called universal unique. And so what we do is uh, we have two people and we say to the first person, all right, you're going to describe a banal experience. Let's, let's say grocery shopping. And the first thing you're going to do for about a minute is talk how people grocery shop. So people get in the car, people go to the store, they put things in a cart, you know, whatever, just universal. And they do that for about a minute. And then we say, okay, now take a beat. And you're going to now tell this person how you grocery shop. And it is completely different. People are laughing. They're finding connection. They're learning about the other person. And it does, it, and, and we're saying that, yeah, that's the point. And this is a very banal activity. Uh, but we reveal, uh, and, and it feels good to both us and the other person to learn that these things about you. Um, and notice the difference in those two different interactions. Yeah, that is, that's great. That's great. I mean, it's just delightful to learn about people's idiosyncrasies and, and take and enjoy diversity. It, you know, to kind of make this a little more, um, uh, this conversation to, to connect it with back to the workplace. Uh, there's some nice work by Anita Ratan and her colleagues just showing that, you know, in the, in the business world, they use this justification for diversity, um, as just being good for money. Like we're going to make a lot of money if we have a diverse, set of uh, employees and be able to cater to better cater to our markets. And that's the predominant justification of diversity, you know, both ethnic and intellectual. It turns out that that's actually not as effective as in creating a place where minorities feel like they'll belong as appeals to the just moral rectitude of diversity and how this is just the right thing to do. This Mm -hmm. is what people care about. This is what we care about as a company. And I think that's an example of how we're just so myopically focused on everything being a means to an end, being instrumental that can kind of lead us to to the wrong kinds of messaging and make us kind of blind to the fact that, you know, diversity is one of the, you know, it's just an important value and an important, um, uh, it's an important value and an important source of of enjoyment in social life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we always end the podcast by asking our guests for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? So a time where I said yes, and then or when, well, a, time, when I, a, time, a time where maybe you normally would say no, uh, oh, but yeah. instead you yes and did it. Yeah, well, I would say, I would say having children. I would say having children. I I was kind of a little scared and not too courageous. Maybe this is a little like improvisation. Life is like mm-hmm. improvisation in some ways. Like, do mm-hmm. can I really be a father? Can I really do this? Do I really want to do this? But I said, yes. And I'm still saying, and I'm so happy. <laughs> How old are the kids? Uh, my kids are 19 and 18. Wow. Those are ages. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the book is called Belonging, The Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. Jeffrey Cohen, thanks for coming on the pod. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. 